This is Rabbi Neet Leah Sarna and Rabbi David Wolkenfeld. Shalom and welcome to the Straw Hat. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the beautiful Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. In this week's episode of the Straw Hat, we have a discussion of the Chulent effect, an important tool for understanding Parashat HaShavua this time of year. We have a discussion of some of the medical halakha questions that are brought up by some assisted reproductive technologies, and we have an interview with Anna Rubin. I've spoken before about uh, Rabbi Professor Mordechai Breuer and what he uh, described as the Chulent effect. Uh, the chill is that when you go to the Hashkama Minyan? <laughs> no. The chill, it, it could be any, any time. Chillant effect is when you go home uh, from shul and have your chillant and then fall asleep and then you forget everything that you heard in that morning's Torah reading. And so the next week when you come to shul, it's like... Or you show up for Shabbos Mincha. Or you show up even better. Show up for Shabbos Mincha. It's like, oh, brand new story. Like, I, I never knew about these characters before. So <laughs> there are like two major times where this this occurs in like very significant ways. Um one is Parshat Noach, which is not the beginning of the, the story. Noah story. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. it's like really important information about him that we get at the end of Parshat Breshit. And but you think, oh, well, I mean, the Parsha is named after him, right? It's it's Parshat Noach, and it does be it is a beginning of the Noach story is at the beginning of uh, Parshat Noach. But because of the Chulent effect, we forget all the stuff we know about him from before. And this is even more dramatic, I think, in the uh, with Parshat Lech Lecha and the Avraham story, mm-hmm. or the Avraham story which does not begin in Parshat Lech Lecha. Uh, we, we... Right, and if, if the story began in Parshat Lech Lecha, you would imagine that Avram was like just a dude going about his life, and all of a sudden he hears God say, go, and he's like, all right, time to go. I'm like, that's not really how... That, that, it's really hard to identify, I think, with that narrative. Um, I, yeah. Like, I would say, I would say, like, as Jews in America in a time when the state of Israel beckons, um, like, I think that narrative is much harder to identify with than, like, this, like, slow, I've known my whole life, I'm headed in this direction. Oh, I see. Interesting. I just, I, I think it, yeah, it's just sort of hard to understand and explain. What was it about Avraham that, that, that I mean, I well, think... yeah, there's two questions, right? Like, what was it about Avraham that caused God to say lecha? And the flip question is, what was it about Avraham that caused him to listen when God and to be fair, nothing in you know the end of Parshat Noach really answers these questions, and, and I think this has uh, left the midrashic uh, tradition to fill in these major, major plot gaps in Avram's backstory. The origin story of Avram is really left unsaid by the Torah. We do, but we do get uh, um, some more information from the end of Parshat Noach, which I think um, maybe it raises more questions than it answers, but it mm-hmm. certainly gives us a fuller and I think very different understanding of Avram. So anyway, that, we, that's, that's a so, review for everyone yeah. who doesn't have a, you're listening in the car, you don't actually <laughs> have a chumash in front of you. Okay, so we're in Breshit Yudal Pasuk Chavav, let's say, we'll start there. Otherwise known as the last few verses of Parshat Noah. Exactly. So we have Vayichi Tarach Shiv'im Shana, so Tarach it lives 70 years. Vayolid at Avram and Nachor at Haran. He has three sons, Avram, Nachor, Haran. And we know about that. And we know that Haran has this child named Lot. And then we also know that Haran dies. Vayamot Haran al aviv Haran dies in the land of Orkastim, which is their birthplace. And the Midrash picks up on, on this trauma and constructs an entire story about how Haran died and why and 
what is it about this place called Ur Kasdim also like combines the like the death of Haran with the name of Ur Kasdim yes, to come can, up and everyone that. can uh, see Rashi for uh, <laughs> for more of that uh, and then the story continues though right so they get married Avram and his brother Nahor get married Shemesh and Avram Sarai Shemesh and Nahor Milka right the Avram's wife as you know is Sarai Nahor marries a woman named Milka amazingly this name Milka really survives and you know like Jewish name like my great grandmother was Milka. Um, not that wasn't a correction not, of Malka. I, possibly, I don't know. Maybe uh, she was always known as Milka, and and um, and Haran's two daughters are Milka and Yiska. Also, so and Yiska for sure survives, right? So it's kind of like this interesting thing about that generation that all the women in it have names that have kind of trickled their way down in one way or another. That's that is interesting. I yeah, not not thought of that before. I don't have anything to say about that, but it is kind of interesting. Um, and there then are fewer female names in Tanakh overall, right? So you were sort of searching for. Yeah, we don't use all of them. <laughs> not all of them are great, you know. Anyways, okay, so um, and and some of them are great characters who don't we don't name after Back them. Home. Um, well, who's that woman who lived for a really long time, like through the- Sarah? Sarah, yeah. You don't know anyone named Sarah. No, I don't. Yeah. Also, because it kind of seems like Masriach, like smelly. Anyways, yeah. No, I don't know a single Sarah, um, but she seems really cool. Anyways, okay. So, uh, so we learn that Sarai has fertility issues. Viti Sarai Akara in La Valad. More on that in. Um, you know, the, the other section of this podcast. Um, this is the part we wanted to talk about. Wow. So Tarach, Avram's dad, takes Avram and Lot and Sarai, and they leave Orkastim together, and where are they going? They're going Artsa Canaan. They're going to the land of Canaan, but they don't make it. Vayavo ad Haran, they go to Haran, Vayishusham, and they settle there. Right, so Orkastim, let's say, is in Mesopotamia, present-day Iraq, and they make their way from Iraq to, you know, before... Um, Highways and uh, cars. You, the way to get from Iraq to Israel was not to go straight west through mm-hmm. this vast um, and unpassable desert, but to go north and and west, like uh, to follow the rivers in the, uh, the the crescent of the Fertile Crescent, and to go mm-hmm. through Syria. And so, Avram's family stops in Syria and doesn't complete the journey, and then it's uh, left for Avram in Parshat Lech to complete the journey. But he's completing a journey that was undertaken by his father, the Lech Lecha, like go. We sometimes also imagine, right? Lechachami artachami moladetcha. Avram's moladet is Or Kastim, and he's not there when Lechacha happens. He's already left. He's already in Haran. And then to the land that I will show you, he was already, already on his way there. On his way to Canaan. It's, you, know, you sort of have, just you start with Lechacha, you think it's like um, a totally, um, like out of the blue, I'm just going to walk, and you'll say stop. But this is a place that he has, his family has been traveling on for some time. For some reason, they get delayed on the journey, and Avram is completing a journey started by his father. So many, many ways to understand that. Ramban actually says that it didn't happen in this order, and that so he answers the question by saying the Torah is, is telling us classic a story. Classic Ramban, right? Saying that the Torah is not written in chronological order. This is one of the classic Ramban, Rashi, and others debate this question. And he, he says to obscure the fact that Avram was leaving his... Uh, leaving his father behind to make this journey, which is like not such a nice thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so therefore the Torah obscures that by 
telling the story not in order, but I think even understanding it in order, I think, can tell us. Um, I think it actually lot. makes yeah. it a little bit more gentle, right? Like that same exact question that the Ramban is asking of. Avram left his family. Is that something that we prize? Is that a good thing? Um, it's Avram in in this casting of it, like minus the Cholent effect, is fulfilling a, a goal of his family instead of kind of like by parents. Like God told me to go, time to yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I think then it, in terms of the relevance for contemporary people, as you alluded to before, I think it makes it so much more, so much more relevant. This is uh, an insight that I heard uh, more than once from Rabbi Ravinder that the difference between, you know, an Avraham and a normal person is not, it's not like he, you know, like he wakes up one morning hearing a voice from God and he does something totally strange and um, unprecedented and, right? No, he's actually doing the exact same thing that he was doing before, that his father had done, that his family had done. He's going to the same exact place that he had been doing, but now he's doing it obeying God's command. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so to live a life in response to God's voice, it doesn't always mean uh, a dramatic change in your lifestyle and how you act and a change of, and a dramatic change, of course, geographic, right? It's just, it, mm-hmm. I'm just living my life, but now I'm doing it in response to God's call instead of for some other reason. And I think we, you know, the Midrash would have us feel, um, and, and this is a perfectly like good casting of the story, right? That Avram did this massive break because he was monotheistic and his dad owned an idol store and mm-hmm. and all of that. And and then in this casting, actually, he's he's in some ways fulfilling like his family's destiny. It seems really kind of divergent from that midrashic narrative. Correct, correct. At, right, the the that school in the midrash where he's he's a iconoclast and breaks with his family. Uh, he, here he's really just, there's more continuity with his family. Again, those are not, they're not contradictory. You can, uh, you know, it's quite possible and quite common to be rebelling against one's parents, against one's family, and also to fulfilling be their fulfilling dreams their dreams for you. Yeah, yeah, this is an extremely 100%. common, right? right? So, yeah, so they're totally. not really in conflict, but I think these these two ways of understanding the story are, are definitely uh, distinct and, and sort of worth paying attention to where the story begins uh, and then later on, we can pay attention to where the story ends. I think the story maybe has more than one end as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that I heard uh, from, from Rabbi Silver, that there are, this Avram story has two beginnings and it has two endings. Mm. So uh, the two beginnings are this journey that Avram takes with his family and the beginning of Lech Lecha, And then there are going to be two endings, which we will uh, come to when we come to them. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and in general, I would say that, um, you know, Back to just the chillant effect in general. Like, we sometimes like to place a lot of emphasis on these Parsha breaks. And that's kind of, you know, if you grow up in any kind of Jewish learning environment, whether that's Hebrew school or day school, there's so much emphasis on Parsha HaShavua that, and, and in Shul, right? Oh, sure. <laughs> in Shul, right? Shul, if you go to Shul, there's a lot of emphasis on Parsha HaShavua. But, but if you think about how the Torah was read um, kind of with a greater um, uh, lens on, on that history, like the Torah was not always read divided up into the Parsha HaShavua that we have. And in fact, like that's always a funny thing to think about um, around Simchat Torah, which we are obviously just putting behind us. Um, that in Eretz Yisrael, the Torah was read on a triennial, not the type of triennial that you, um, that some other denominations use today, but a triennial wherein you completed the whole Torah just every three years. Right. Just to clarify, there are some liberal congregations today that don't read the entire. Torah portion. But each they'll week. read a third of Noah, a third of Lechacha, as opposed to 
reading the whole Torah c- continuously just in a three-year Right. Track. That old, that ancient system that died away, you know, eight or nine hundred years ago mm-hmm. um, in Eretz Yisrael, that according to that older system, there was no Simchas Torah because you didn't finish the Torah every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, and the divisions were just different. They were, like, the Torah would divide not into whatever, 40-something, whatever many Parshiot was divided mm-hmm. into 100-and-something. Uh, and and we see the, the remnants of this because we um, expand and contract our Torah portions depending on um, the calendar, right? So some years we have Achrimot separate from Kedoshim. Like this past year was the longest, the, had the most days that a Hebrew calendar can possibly have. And therefore we had uh, we had one contracted Parsha, right? Double portion. One double, double Parsha, and that was to catch up with Israel after... Shavuot, something like that, Pesach, whatever it was, whatever holiday it was that we... It was late, before Shavuot's time, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and uh, right, because even when we were in Israel this summer, I heard um, Chukat twice or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, right, we didn't catch up for a long time, um, but, right, and so in order to catch up, we contracted, but, so even that, right, like, is it Achrimot Kedoshim, or is it Achrimot and then Kedoshim, and, and those divisions are, are flexible because, like, those Parsha distinctions are actually kind of almost not as important as we culturally emphasize them. And in fact, divisions of the Torah into any, we were talking about this in in Mishmar uh, recently, divisions of the Torah into anything are kind of late. And that, that's actually a confusing thing, meaning are the chapter, like the Perak divisions are... Um, medieval e- Christian. Medieval Christians, right? 1200 Christian. I think the guy's name was Stephen Langdon. I don't know. I'm pulling that out of my like day school brain. Um, and, um, and, and we've adopted them because they're extremely useful and they help us to talk about the Torah in a very clear, kind of specific way, as opposed to like the third aliyah of Ahrimo, it says this, um, which is a little bit harder. But if you look at the way Rishonim reference things in the Torah, they basically just quote Psukim and assume you know the rest of it by heart and f- can figure out what's going on, uh, or the way the Talmud quotes. Yeah, yeah. Torah so, also. Similar, you see this also in the, when the, we, we showed him discuss the Talmud. There, there are no um, pages because there were no pages. printed books yeah. uh, in the time of the Rishonim. And so they say, yeah, the, the beginning, beginning of, of, this of this chapter, the end of that chapter, right? And and, and, and that's how you also, you have to really be holding because they won't even list all the words of the beginning of that chapter. They'll just say like, Parak, like, Chaf Chubchik, hey, and you have to know that's Parak Kol Habasar in Cholin that contains like the vast majority of Hilchot Kashrut. <laughs> right, so if you're studying Yerdea, then that's usually the answer. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's sort of an interesting way in which like we're it's so I mean pages are so useful and and having those citations are so useful uh, that. You know, that, that, that we that kind we, of like give in to them. Yeah, but really I, I, the Torah is meant yeah. to be this continuous thing that you know by heart, um, theoretically. Obviously it's the written Torah, so not as much by heart as the oral Yeah, yeah I, just, I, I think, I, I, think I, I don't want to, I mean, originally sure, but I, I guess I, I don't know, I don't want to privilege any frame of reference for Torah study over, over any other. I, I think that each have advantages. The insights, you look like the classic Rishonim, uh, they're they're mostly something Rashi Ibn Ezra Rashbam. It's like verse by verse, uh, mm-hmm. you know, pasuk by pasuk. What does these words mean? What does this verse mean? And the pasuk divisions, we should say, the pasuk yeah. divisions are Masoretic. Those are very very old. Um, that's like sixth century. No, older than that. I'm not even sure. Well, it goes um, back. That's Rashi Pelik goes back to Simon. Right, I mean, right, the, the, right, the written, right. The written, the written Masoretic, like as far as we know, I think is, is sixth century. But I think later, but fine. Doesn't matter. Um, that, that, that goes big way. But, right. but like the divisions between pasuk by pasuk, right? That's like. From, we believe that to be from Sinai, um, and and you don't really see debates over that in any. No, but context. the frame of reference. In other words, like Rashi, yeah. care, Rashi will tell you what this. I think we've uh, the, some very, very dramatic examples where he'll translate, explain the same word in contradictory, opposite ways, mm-hmm. different verses. Because like Rashi's agenda is, what does this verse mean in its local context? Mm-hmm. Ramban 
in his introductions to the five books of the Torah. So here's what this book is about, right? right. But, that's, but it's I feel it's much more modern um, Torah scholarship, which will um, like look at you know the like the the structure of like Sefer Midbar and what, what's what's the what are, what are the patterns and and the you know the chaotic structure of this book. You know, right? They're much more. It's a broader frame. And so I I think there is. Um, it's a little orthogonal to our conversation, but mm-hmm. I, 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 that it was triggered to say this. I think there's um, just different types of scholarship that you can engage in and different things you can discover when your frame of reference is very, very narrow or very, very broad. And I think in right. different times in history, different types of observations were more common or more popular or more useful uh, than others. But right. But I would say like when you're learning Torah, it's kind of all on the table, meaning the Torah has been divided up in so many different ways. Right. So I wouldn't say, oh, you should divide like up a Pasuk and assume like I can read this half of the Pasuk without the second half of the Pasuk. I would say that's for sure like not right. But um, but to say, oh, I'm going to I'm interested in the themes of this Parsha or Correct. this um, whole book or right, like adjusting your lens in that way, I think is, is an old kind of Torah study tool and, and something that can be so interesting in all these different ways. And work be, and worth being self-conscious and reflective about what your lens mm-hmm. is. So if you're what saying, you're what are the, so when people say, what are the themes of Parsha Lechacha? Like, that's fine, but that's like that's. But just vi- know that that's a choice right. you're Parsha, making. Parsha, like Jews lived according to the Torah and read the Torah every week in shul for many, many centuries before Parsha Lechacha existed. existed. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, and it's a choice to then exclude the, the, the first beginning of the Avram story when you're going to like mm-hmm. talk about the themes of Parsha Lechacha, even though on the other hand, has been around for a very long time. It's right. a dominant way that we relate to the Torah, like hearing it read in shul according to these these uh, partial divisions, and, and so that it has its own validity. And just like every choice, I think has its. Just should be self conscious about it and be aware of it. You know, Sarah talks a lot about this in her work with Safari. Like digital mm-hmm. technology allows right. even other f- tools of study and other frames of reference and. Uh, you know, she encounters lots of like you know people who are have like nostalgic connections to one like, specific one specific layout of a page or something right, like and, that. and it's, yeah. really, it's just a stage in the technical development of, from from scroll to codex to book right mm-hmm. to digital technology like like these are just stages of technology mm-hmm. that allow us to study Torah and again each one allow has different advantages and disadvantages and and I think it's worth being self-conscious about the choice rather than just take for granted one particular technology or one particular method of citation or one particular somewhat mm-hmm. artificial division of of the Torah in summary beware of the chillant effect so for our next section I wanted to um, zoom in on just one um, piece of information that we learned about Sarai in the end of Parsha Nawak. It says, Vatihi Sarai Akara in La Valad, um, that Sarah was infertile and she didn't have a child. And this is in the context of Harad having a child named Lot. Um, so we learned that Abraham and Sarah were not able to have children. And um, we wanted to use that as a jumping off point for some of the beginning of life um, issues that we get questions about a lot and that um, affect our community and the Jewish community and all humans, I think, um, you know, really, really greatly at a certain stage of life. Yeah, the the other sort of um, prompt for for our discussion of this was the post shachrit weekday shachrit halacha learning. We are making our way through a book by my friend, my colleague Rabbi Jason Weiner, who was here at Shalom a few years ago as a scholar in residence. He is a rabbi and chaplain in. Los Angeles, and has become, through his job as a hospital chaplain, a really important scholar of Jewish medical ethics and medical halacha. Uh, the book is 
it's great because it has like really extensive footnotes, so you can mm-hmm. dig in and follow up and and you know do all the work yourself and check his sources. Uh, but the actual um, body of the book is is quite accessible and yeah, just like very sort of easy to comprehend. Uh, uh, overviews of these topics in medical halakha and medical ethics. So, so beginning of life is certainly an area fraught with medical halakha, and, and so we wanted to sort of share some of those um, discussions uh, w- with the podcast. Yeah, why don't you start us off? So, so one uh, question that I've received more than once uh, came from women who were undergoing some form of artificial insemination or implantation of an IVF-created um, embryo, and they wanted to know if they needed to uh, go to the mikvah before this procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, the answer is no, they don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's sort of interesting, right? You know, but like it's normally uh, it, in, uh, you know, people who are, uh, you know, making babies without uh, assisted reproductive technology, uh, those women do need to go to the mikvah before conceiving. Uh, and, and so it's sort of, it's not a, it's, that's where this, this question uh, comes from. But uh, for a medical procedure of this kind, there's absolutely no need to go to the mikvah. And the halachic source for this is kind of amazing. So um, there's a, a book that didn't make its way into Tanakh, but does make it, so the rabbis quote it in the Talmud called Ben Sira. And um, it's Jewish tradition that gets quoted, I think by Rishonim is the earliest we have it. I'm not sure it's actually in the Talmud. I think it is. It is in the Talmud? I think it is, yeah. Okay, that Ben, how was Ben Sira born? His mother was in a bathtub that a man had used previously, and she became, came inseminated and that is how Ben Sira which is by the way this book of very interesting wisdom literature a lot about kind of how amazing the Torah is it's in the Catholic Bible right it's yeah it's called, in the Apocrypha it's called Ecclesiasticus in isn't it I have no idea I, I believe I, you or it could be called Ben Sira I wouldn't know okay. <laughs> can bring Ethan back he'll uh, tell us <laughs> this, this, this we can Google will tell us this as soon as we start recording it's true um, and um, anyway so so that's like kind of the earliest Jewish source that we have for artificial insemination of like women becoming impregnated in a bathtub I don't know whether that's actually like physically possible but uh, whatever I definitely not I think definitely yeah, not I think that's not. like a middle school sex ed that's not possible <laughs> um, uh, but, but it's it's great legal precedent for us in a world where we genuinely do have artificial insemination um, because she was, I think the, the legend goes that she was Nina at the time and became uh, pregnant. And so um, as long as there's no um, intercourse involved, you can become pregnant while you're Nina and there's no um, halachic issue involved in that. I, I'm always, always struck by these types of medical halachic like sources from like, you know, which are these, these sort of somewhat obscure Agadot stories, legends, you know, mm-hmm. you know, um, that uh, are then used as as like authoritative legal precedents for these sort of new halakhic. Totally, I think it's a really interesting question. Sort of worth maybe a sort of fuller fuller discussion. You know, if you if you're learning, we have an unbroken chain of halakhic adjudication on the kashrut of chickens, right? We know exactly, you know, and you mm-hmm. can, every every place where Jews have lived, at every century, at every generation, there are chicken questions. And so if you're studying, like, is my chicken kosher? Like, there's like a, this is a genre of, like, what that, mm-hmm. um, it's a field, <laughs> which right. has rules, okay, which has sources and precedent and, and like, unbroken chain when either of these new medical... Um, right, like, you have a case, my, my egg and my spouse's sperm are being incubated inside correct. a third human being. Like, that yeah. is inconceivable for, like, the vast majority yeah. of Halakhic yeah. history yeah. 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 until the last couple of years. And, and, so, and then you have to find precedent because we want to feel like every decision we make today is connected back to Sinai. Correct. And so how do you do that with these amazing new technologies? Yeah, so 
the approach is to find these like these like very far fetched precedents, and and that that tends to be what's done. Uh, I think it's uh, yeah, I think it's a complicated move to make because you're taking texts that were not in the original context, and as they were understood for centuries, were not understood to be um, like legally helpful right. for like how we live our lives and decisions we make practically, and now that's how they're being used. I think that's that's interesting. So uh, another sort of more um, another sort of beginning of life uh, halakha question I, I've received more than once uh, concerned uh, somebody who was undergoing fertility treatment that they were just like hormonal treatment as part of uh, fertility and she needed to take injections of some hormone and, and the question was concerning taking those injections on Shabbat right generally we don't engage in medical interventions on Shabbat we don't also don't hurt ourselves we on don't Shabbat hurt ourselves on Shabbat we don't cause bleeding on Shabbat mm-hmm. uh, we don't measure things out on Shabbat right these are all right. You know, that measuring is rabbana and healing is rabbana and causing bleeding is a jiraita, right? So there are all sorts right. of uh, intentionally causing bleeding is a jiraita, right? So, right. Um, right, it's not like, oh, I tripped on the sidewalk. I violated a jiraita. Yeah, and here, the, here the, bleeding, the, the, bleeding, that's, that's the, <laughs> the bleeding, that's the outcome of an uh, injection is also not intentional bleeding as well. Right. But, but so these are all... There's no biblical, you know, issues at play here for this. And she wants to know, could she, could she violate Shabbat in these rabbinic violations in order to undergo this fertility treatment. So in general, the threshold for medical intervention on Shabbat that doesn't involve a diorita would be someone who is um, so sick that they are holech mishkav, right? Mm-hmm. I can't get, I, I'm bedridden. Can't get out of bed. I'm bedridden. Which I was taught um, many, many years ago that the, the definition of that, my, my ailment is so severe that my normal course of behavior is curtailed. Mm-hmm. So my headache is so bad that instead of going to the Shabbos afternoon class, I'm going to... I just want to take a nap or right. I'm going to like stay indoors in a dark room instead of like, you know, hanging out, going to Kiddush or whatever. You know, so like the that. question becomes, is infertility like a headache? <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. So exactly. So what, what, what do we compare it to? Right. So on one hand, this woman is entirely like she looks completely healthy. She, she goes, wants to go to the afternoon class. She'll make it. You know, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah, right. she, you know she, she's she's engaging in all, all normal physical behavior. She's eating normally. She's very active. She's energetic. She's full of health and vigor. She, mm-hmm. right, she's prepared to become pregnant and, and carry a baby. Very, very, like like the spitting image of, of health. Um, on the other hand, she needs these injections in order to help her conceive. So uh, the, the way in which we come to understand, we say that, well, actually, like her inability to conceive without these injections, that's like a, an organ system of her body that isn't functioning appropriately. Like her reproductive system, her, I guess her ovaries are are not functioning as they should. They need these injections to function as they should. And so even though everything else is thankfully very healthy, her ovaries are not, they're, um, it's a form of organ failure, right? Mm-hmm. Her, and and like that, yeah. it's a treatable organ form. It's a like, um, you know, so it's really maybe similar to a diabetic mm-hmm. who could be quite healthy except whatever their uh, hormone, hormonal um, balancing system isn't functioning as it should. Their insulin mm-hmm. production and regulation system isn't functioning as it should, and they need injections. Uh, this woman's ovaries aren't functioning as they should. She needs injections. So um, in that sense, this definitely meets the threshold for these rabbinic violations of Shabbat. She can measure the medication in the syringe. She can inject herself, and, and she can do that. And I think, uh, you know, this is... Uh, you know, you know, thankfully, you know, my understanding is that these injections worked successfully in, in, in oh, all of the wonderful. cases that, 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 that I was about, about which I was consulted in these cases. And which is, so it's a, at least a you know, happy ending to these uh, to these stories. Yeah, that's great. Um, another one that, that uh, we've gotten from time to time also relating to Shabbat is I have to travel to the hospital or to the fertility clinic or whatever it is um, on Shabbat. 
Um, and so obviously it depends like where the fertility clinic is and what modes of transit are available to you. Um, but that's another one where we've always been encouraging of like, let's figure out how to get you there with the fewest kind of possible Shabbat violations, but without question of like, if you have to go to the fertility clinic on Shabbat, you have to go to the right, fertility clinic Right, because again, this, is, this would be, a, you know, these, it's generally possible to do a lot of travel without violating a, a biblical prohibition. And uh, to the extent that Right, right. You know, we, we don't, we don't, we don't vi- biblical violations of Shabbat are for when someone's life is in danger, right? Mm-hmm. So someone's life is in danger, um, and the fertility analog, you know, if like, you know, a woman in labor, right, she can drive herself to the hospital, or anyone needs to can drive to the hospital, mm-hmm. and she wants, you know, her, her physician or her husband or her sister to be there in the hospital with her because that's what she needs for her psychological well being while mm-hmm. she's in this life threatening situation of being labor. in active labor. Yeah. Like, that's done. Okay. We don't ask questions. You know, she signs the forms in the hospital, whatever, whatever that right. has to be done is done. Um, yeah, Jewish OBGYN can do the incisions if that's yeah. necessary. Whatever's necessary to save life, we do on Shabbat. We, we don't, right? But but here, life is not in danger. But this is again a it's a she's experiencing organ failure of her, mm-hmm. or, or the husband is, is experiencing organ failure of his or her reproductive um, organs, reproductive system, and so rabbinic violations of Shabbat for somebody with that type of medical problem uh, is generally allowed. And so how can we get you to the place where this can be done, where you can receive the treatment that you need um, without violating uh, Shabbat biblically? And so that's, you know, you know Uber is, is very helpful for that. Yeah. And uh, um, public transit, public transit, credit card, right, you know, th- ways, you know, maybe even, you know, and there are, you know, whatever people can consult with, with uh, uh, their uh, local Orthodox whomever listening and just to figure <laughs> out the nuances of how to do this in, in the best mm-hmm. possible way. But the big picture, this is, you know, this is uh, something that's done. Yeah, totally. Um, and I guess I guess the point we want to make is like if this is you, if you're listening to this and this is affecting your life, like come talk to us. Uh, we want to be able to show up for you. Also, we want to be able to support you in it, even if you don't have any specific question. You just want to, you know, sit and talk about it. Like we talk to people about these issues a lot. And we are here for you. <laughs> and, and that's a good sort of segue, not just us, like the community is really here here, for, you know, for you. I, I think uh, it's one of the hardest things about. Uh, experiencing infertility is that sense of being isolated from mm-hmm. everyone else who's having lots of babies and all the children mm-hmm. in the shul, et cetera. Uh, and in fact, so many you know, of those children were um, conceived um, after a lot of heartache and with a lot of medical assistance. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, people don't, you know, advertise that or know that, but, um, you know, and I, I only know, I'm sure, a small fraction of, of those cases, yeah. and I'm sure it's much, much, much broader. But we do offer an infertility big brother, big sister, little sibling program. We can match somebody who is currently experiencing infertility or undergoing treatments with someone five or 10 or 20 years older um, who is a parent who, who went through a, some similar path and who uh, could just show up for you also. Yeah, yeah, if you want someone to like send you an encouraging text message the day of an IVF implantation or who can meet you for lunch, uh, you know, or, or even, I don't know, maybe drive you to a, to the clinic to get a shot with, you know, your, you know, your partner can't do that. Like mm-hmm. that's, you know. And there's also um, there's a, a nurse in our community who who has told me that um, she's available to like d- do shots for people if like that's something that you or your partner or whatever don't feel comfortable doing at home like she'll just meet you or you can go to her house and she'll do it um, so there's all sorts of like softer resources that like this community can make available to you um, if that's what you're looking for and and if there's some way that we can help. Yeah. And people also, we we also, um, you know, as a religious community, we also, we also dive in for people. We have, yeah. you know, uh, 
you can put yourself on uh, on our on our Cholim list, our Mishaberic list, if uh, if you feel that the tefillot of the community would would be a source of support at this time. Uh, we also every year on Simchat Torah. Now for the second year we've done this uh, at the Kolon Arim Aliyah. I, I recite a fertility prayer of a Mishaberic for those experiencing infertility that uh, is shared by an Israeli organization called Yesh Tikva, um, which exists to provide support for. Jewish people experiencing infertility. I think it's a beautiful tefillah. It speaks of mm-hmm. all of our imahot and other um, women in Jewish tradition in Tanakh who s- struggled with infertility and all of the righteous men and women throughout the generations who who faced the struggle. And, and as, a, uh, as a Leia, um, uh-huh. it's, this this prayer is always so funny for me to hear because she gets yeah. left off. She's left off, And yeah. she switched for Chana. <laughs> right. And I was like, I was here, and I'm like, what about me? And then it's like, oh, right, she didn't have problems. <laughs> right. No, she had a lot of other problems. This other she problems, didn't have, right. Also, uh, you know, I guess a good reminder, like everyone has... Uh, has their own sorrows. Not with the... I, I, you know, it's not with being jealous of other people because uh, undoubtedly they have all sorts of... Right, it's it's true, and people who are going through infertility, like especially in a community correct, like correct, ours, where correct, there's a baby correct. born like every other day, there's no way to. I mean, maybe there's some sadikim out there who can't avoid it. There are but... many reasons to be jealous of lots of other people, but I'm, <laughs> saying, I'm just saying, like the more you know, the less. Uh, I, I don't know. As I've gotten older, I, I, I've like kind of you know I've just discovered. Uh, too many like really deep uh, tragic elements of the lives of people who mm-hmm. might have been felt uh, some jealousy of to kind of uh, yeah. um, that's sort of helped me get over at least that one um, yeah petty I, would, vice. I would say the other okay so we say that fertility prayer on uh, at Kol Arim every year which is a beautiful thing um, the other resource that we have that sh- should not go unmentioned is the mikvah has a lot of resources um, and tefillot um, for for people who um, and, and the mikvah has kind of historically been this time for women to to pray for, for these exact sorts of things. Um, and also, if part of your fertility, um, I don't know, quest um, involves like, when can I go to the mikvah? How can I get to the mikvah earlier? Mm-hmm. Um, questions like that. I am definitely here for those questions. I know that Rabbi Nitzhar Wachenfeld is also has a lot of experience with that. And literally, like there are cases where getting to the mikvah a day or two earlier is, is a make or break in fertility. And, and thank God our community really does have resources um, to provide halachic assistance with that. And I've definitely kind of coached people through like day by day <laughs> of like, I did this check at this time. It came out like this. What happens now? Um, and getting people to the mikvah um, in in a way that that enables their fertility process. Yes, absolutely. I, and, and I would just even it's even more proactively than that. I'm just like good hilchot uh, education can um, help help babies come into the world and and uh, myths and misconceptions and poor education and you know just false things that you know kind hearted you know but unqualified. Uh, college teachers say, make it harder for babies to come into the world. I think this is one of those I think, areas of halakhic knowledge where the stakes could not be higher. You know, if you mm-hmm, uh, have some extra chumras in your kitchen, okay, you know, like, because hey, go ahead, great for you, you know, yeah. but uh, some extra... We do not encourage extra chumras in your need of practice. Yeah. Or, or, or at least to choose them very wisely in ways that yeah. don't prevent uh, fertility. Right. And the other thing I would say about the mikvah, just, just to round that out, is that I, I've heard from many women that they found our mikvah to be just like a particularly supportive environment, that they've kind of gone to the mikvah with certain, you know, like if you have a mark of like, this is where you have to put this injection, and then like the mikvah attendant kind of, I don't know, like like show solidarity with that. And so I've just heard all these beautiful um, stories of people for whom that attention that they got at the mikvah was very much like wanted and needed, um, and that our, the mikvah and the community feel of our mikvah. I was able to provide that in a very beautiful way for them. Um, so hopefully, 
I would love to always hear more of those stories. Um, and 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 we're always, uh, particularly our, our mikvah director, um, is always on a path towards uh, encouraging that that exact type of feeling in our mikvah. And people who feel you can provide that kind of um, compassion and discretion to ask to be mikvah attendants. There's always yes, a... <laughs> there's always a need for more mikvah attendants. I'm very happy to be interviewing Anna Rubin today for the podcast. Uh, Anna and I know each other for many, many years from uh, her time as an undergraduate at Princeton when Sarah and I uh, worked there. Uh, And uh, it's always fun when uh, our students follow us to Chicago. Uh, And Anna's a little bit different from some of our other interviewees. She's not a member of Anshay Shalom, uh, but she uses Anshay Shalom as a Jewish resource. And I think that's uh, sort of an interesting perspective that she can offer. Uh, so, so tell us a little bit about uh, how Anshay Shalom fits into the mosaic of Jewish institutions that sustain your life here in Chicago. Yeah. Well, I remember when you all first moved here and Sarah described Lakeview as like a Hillel, but a community and like everyone kind of goes between different shuls and is friends with people in different congregations. And when I moved here, it was so exciting to see that that actually wasn't just hype, but it was very true. Um, And so it's, you know, so fun for me to be able to go to shul d'anshe emet, but then come to anshe shalom for mincha mariv or um, to come for weekday minyan or holidays or just be able to have a community in these different communities and know people who are a part of different communities and amongst these communities. So let's so what are the congregations that that are on your like Rolodex of uh, places you attend? I yeah, I mean, I go to Anshe every week. I come to ASBI pretty regularly. Um I go to Mishkan um and then because of the work I do, I'll, you know, I'll go to congregations across the city and suburbs. So tell us a little bit, what is, that's a good segue, what is the work that you do? Yeah, so I'm a community organizer at the Jewish Council on Urban Affairs. I kind of work on our immigration justice work, but I also oversee our congregation partner work. And that means I get to um, visit and spend time with our 12 congregation partners and just get to know what the broad Jewish congregational landscape in Chicago land is. Can you say a word about the broad congregational <laughs> landscape in Chicago? Um, can I? Yes. I mean, I think it's just exciting, right? It's um, it's fun to have attended both, you know, services and social action events at all of these different kinds of congregations, um, and see that every congregation kind of has its own approach to. You know, both talking about social justice and just being Jewish in their community. And so, um, right, from Mishkan, it's inspired down to Judaism. And really, what does that mean for them to embody that? And for, I know, right, talking about ASBI and being an urban modern Orthodox congregation, what does it really mean to embody that? Um, Yeah, I think it's cool to realize that it isn't just duplicative, but every congregation is really bringing something unique depending on the community. That that's really in. special. I, I, I found that too, and I, I think that's, that is a special thing about our community. Uh, in terms of like the, the ways in which someone like you can take advantage of different congregations as, you know, t- to serve as Jewish resources for you, do you think that is uh, – to me, I, I think that's a, that's a really uh, like almost unique aspect of, of this neighborhood, of this community, is that uh, – you've experienced that elsewhere? Do you have friends in other communities who found that in the same way? Uh, no, I think this is different, right? I mean, I don't know if people have had 
conversations with friends who live in New York, for example, where it's like, this is where you go Friday night and this is where you go Saturday and this is what you do. And it's, it feels, um, very kind of mandated and siloed in some way. And Mm. this, that's kind of the opposite of how it feels here. Um, yeah. And so I, I, somebody asked me recently, you know, do you feel like you have a rabbi? So I feel like I have many rabbis, (laughs) a whole, a whole slew of people who I can turn to depending on what the issue, the question, the event is. Fantastic. Well, that's really good. I, I, I agree that we're all pretty lucky to live in a place like this neighborhood in Chicago, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I'm glad you feel the same way, and I hope to keep seeing you uh, uh, at Shalom whenever we can serve as a resource for you and your friends and anyone else, and I think that the shul's really, um, uh, really proud to be a resource for people who come every day and people who come once or twice a week and people who come once or twice a year. Uh, if we can be a resource, we're really happy to serve in that capacity. Right, Thanks. So thank you for coming in and being interviewed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Straw Hat Podcast. We are always appreciative of your positive feedback. Let us know how you found this episode stimulating and interesting and helpful. And you can reach us via email and phone and text or find us in person at Shul. Negative feedback can be placed into the new Hashkama crockpot, which is also large enough to double as a hot tub. 